Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for the miracle of Christmas. And we pray tonight that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see it for what it is. You'd open the ears of our hearts to understand what it means. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Can we see through to the real heart of Christmas? Can we see through to the real heart of Christmas? We could spend time, if we had it, talking about the importance of seeing and how much of life is having stuff in front of your eyes and not seeing what's actually there. Not seeing can be very insignificant, but it can also be very significant. I've been thinking about the global financial crisis in 2007, 2008. The entire world economy was melting down, in particular the housing sector, and I've got this vivid memory of Ben Bernanke, then the Federal Reserve Chairman, being asked repeatedly about the housing sector and saying again and again, it's, we, we just think it's isolated to that part of the economy. As the entire economy is melting down, the number one person who's in charge of the economy is telling us it's no big deal, and then it all unravels. And it was going on for months and months and months. That's a negative example. A positive example is my hero, Alexander Fleming. I've told you this before, I never tire of talking about the guy who discovered penicillin, who uh, left and went on vacation to Scotland. And uh, the guy who was taking care of his lab was a bit of a mess. And one of the windows was left open and he comes back to the lab and it's just a big you know, kitchen mess. It looks like some raccoons have been having a full-time job while he's been gone. And he looks at one of the Petri dishes and unlike 999,999 scientists, he doesn't say what every one of them would say, which is, let's keep going, let's clean up. He looks at it and says, why does that look like that? That shouldn't look like that. What's going on? And there was this accident, and this thing was growing that wasn't supposed to be there. And he said, why is that there? That was the beginning of penicillin. It was right in front of his eyes, but almost all of us would have missed it, and so would most scientists, but he saw it. So seeing is a crucial part of Christmas. If we had time, I'd take you to the five verses past today's narrative, verses 15 to 20 in Luke. The word seeing is used not once, not twice, but three times of the shepherds. Seeing, seeing, seeing. They have to see. So what do we see? You all with me? All right, four simple questions. What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? And what does it mean? You all with me? What happened? How did it happen? Why did it happen? What did it mean? Let's take them one at a time. First of all, what happened? We are at the edge of the edge of what's fully describable in words, the awesomeness of Christmas. So I brought a poet and a theologian to help us see what you make of what they do with Christmas. It's almost impossible to fully describe the awesomeness of this event. It's so splendid. It's so miraculous. It's so splendiferous. Extrialocagilistic, expialidocious, whatever the heck that word is that Mary Poppins says. It, there's no word in English that conveys it. But listen to these two great people try. One is Bono, who's a wonderful musician and poet who happens to be a Christian. And in a recent interview, said this, quite fascinating from someone who sees with the eyes of his heart as he does. The idea, he says, speaking of Christmas, that there's a force of love and logic behind the universe is overwhelming to start with, if you believe it. 
actually maybe even far-fetched to start with, but the idea that that same love and logic would choose to describe itself as a baby born in straw and poverty is genius and brings me to my knees, literally. To me, as a poet, I am just in awe of that. It makes some sort of poetic sense. It's the thing that makes me a believer, though it didn't dawn on me for many years. So there's your poet. Here's your theologian, Tom Wright, Anglican and Anglican bishop who's forgotten more about the New Testament than I'll ever know. Listen to his way of getting at it. How can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. We may not be content there, but we don't know how to escape. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? Let's be clear about what we're talking about. The author of the story entered as a character in his own story. Eternity intersected with time. You and I live on the visited planet. Jesus is God with skin. Right is right. It is the devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world. It is awesome. And it really happened in space and time history. And the world has never been and will never be the same. It really happened in space and time history. You all together so far? That's number one. Number two, how did it happen? The word I want you to attach yourself to is condescension. It's a word that you and I use mostly with negative uh, sort of ideas around it. You say such and such a person is condescending, meaning they're arrogant. But the Latin is con, with, and descend. It means to descend together with. So if you're with me and you're thinking about the way I want you to think about this word, think of going to somebody's house and, and you're with the mother of a family and she's got a six-month-old and all of a sudden you look over and she's prostrate on the rug and she's looking at her baby in the eyes and she's going, boo, boo, ba, ba, boo, boo. Now, you know her well enough to know that she's got a college education and a graduate degree and she's perfectly capable of stringing together incredibly elaborate paragraphs and sentences and she's doing nothing of the kind. Do you think that she's an idiot? Do you think that she's lost her mind? Do you think that she's a lousy mother? None of that comes to your mind. You know exactly what she's doing. She's right down there on the ground meeting her baby on her own terms. And it doesn't look ridiculous if you're a mother. It looks fantastic. And the more important thing is it looks absolutely fantastic to the baby, which is the whole point. So the point of condescension is this, the God who made heaven and earth, listen to Jeremiah, he made heaven and earth by the power of his outstretched hand and nothing is too difficult for him. That God, the great and awesome God, who's that great and that big and that magnificent and that holy and that majestic, that God came all the way down, all the way down into human life and into a mother's womb and to become chromosomes and cells. Wow. 
Now I want you to stop and think because you have an advantage over your forefathers and foremothers at this point because you and I know more about the bigness of God than they did because we have an analogy that's available to us which wasn't available to them, which is interstellar space and modern cosmology, cosmology and astronomy. I made myself look up the Voyager today on my computer. It was launched in September 1977. It's still out there, by the way. They think it's going to be going until 2025. According to the computer today, and you can go check this at home on the NASA website, it is 14.6 billion miles from Earth now. It travels at 38,000 miles per hour. If you look it up in real time, it's 14.8 billion miles from Earth and, and counting. And that's just that Voyager, and he kind of went out to you know Saturn and all that great stuff and finally made it to interstellar space, and that's just within our galaxy. And now we know that there's galaxies upon galaxies. So the scientists tell us, are you ready, that the known universe, not, not the whole universe, just the known universe, is 93 billion light years in diameter at the present time billion light years in diameter. And whatever God is, he's way, 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 way bigger than that. And last time I checked, that's really, really, really big. <laughs> and a baby and a cell in a baby's, as a baby in a mother's womb is really, really, really small, which means God came way, way down. He condescended. My favorite story about this which I absolutely love, is of a mother who was doing what my family was doing today. Maybe your family did it too. They were, they were at the tree. They were putting on ornaments. It was Christmas Eve. And she had her five-year-old son, and they were kind of doodling around. And he was helping with the ornaments. And at one point, he got behind the tree. And then he kind of was laying down prostrate behind the tree, and she was putting stuff on. And all of a sudden, you know how children are. They can just say the most remarkable things for the most remarkable reasons. All of a sudden, she hears him say, Mom, look! And she's kind of like, whoa. And she looks at him, and he's prostrate, upside down, looking backwards, and he says, God has become my size! And he's looking straight at the crash, through the tree and straight at the crash, upside down, backwards, five years old. Oh, look, God, God's become my size. Boom. That's it. That's it in one story. So, it really happened. It happened because God, who was all the way up, came all the way down. That's how it happened. Why did it happen? Why did God have to condescend? Because he wanted to meet us on our own terms, and if God were really God and came as really God, based on who we are and the way he's put us together, we would be obliterated if he came as he really is. Frederick Buechner is quoted at the beginning of a prayer for Owen Meany this way. Without somehow destroying me in the process, how could God reveal himself in a way that would leave no room for doubt? If there was no room for doubt, there would be no room for me. Emily Dickinson, as she often magnificently did, puts it in poetic terms. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise as lightning to the children ease with explanation kind. Listen, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Yes, exactly. Why 
did God have to come all the way down and do so much work and condescend so far because he wanted to meet us on our own terms, as delicate and as frail and as adequate as we are. One of my favorite characters in Christian history is Celsus. He was an early critic of the Christians, and he hated Christmas. And one of the things that he said over and over again is, you know Christianity is not true because Christmas is a bunch of fubble nuts. And the way he said it was fubble nuts above all other ways was, if Jesus was really God incarnate, if God really came in flesh, if, if God actually entered history, we all know how it would have worked. He would have come into the Roman courtyard with courtiers and trumpets and royal robes and everybody would have known. This is silly. Everybody knows this is rubbish. This is now God comes into history. He knew it was false. Well, ha, ha, ha. God's ways are not our ways. Have you noticed? He specializes in taking the weak things of the world and using them to shame the wise and make them look foolish like Celsus. No, it's really true. He came all the way down and he did it so that we could hear him and see him and feel him and deal with God with skin on our terms and not be obliterated in the process. So it really happened. It, it happened because God descended and condescended. It happened because God wanted to do it in such a way to love us and not obliterate us in the process. Now, finally, if you're staying with me, what does it mean? Augustine, in one of his sermons, talks about a baptism. The boy's like six months old or something, and he kind of fancifully goes around the congregation, and he says, look at all the adults who have children and their own families. What are they thinking? And he says, some are probably saying, I wonder if he's going to be a doctor. I wonder if he's going to be a lawyer. I wonder if he's going to be a teacher. And he goes around like that for a while, and he says, but I, but I, I, I can tell you one thing that none of them saying, and that's, I wonder if he's going to die. Because everybody knows that's not up for discussion or debate. The question of the teacher, that's part of the mystery of life. That's still yet to be determined. But the fact that he's going to die is not, not at all in question. And you're never going to get Christmas unless you understand that the cradle goes in a straight line to Calvary. It always has. It always will. The steps from the cradle go straight to the cross. Jesus was born to die to save us from sin and death and darkness and despair. Tim Keller, in one of his wonderful books, talks about gift giving and gift receiving. And he says, you know, some of the things that you get when you receive gifts are very easy to get because they're free and they're nice and they're given by people who love you. But sometimes you have to get a gift and you kind of have to swallow your pride. So he gives this hypothetical explanation. He said, you go to your friend's house and it's a birthday party and the first gift you open it and it says, how to have an actually effective diet. And he's, you know, you kind of, kind of got to cry. Okay. And then you open gift number two, which is another book, and it says, uh, how to deal effectively with arrogance. <laughs> and, and, he, and he says, and it's quite wonderful stuff, he said, uh, if you say thank you so much, you have to do it in a sense admitting I am overweight and I'm obnoxious, <laughs> which is not very easy to do. And the message of Christmas is right here, which is that you've got to understand if you're going to receive what this actually means is, that whatever else sin and rebellion and, and our messed up lives mean that God had to fix, the fact that he had to fix it in this way means it was a really big problem, which needed a really big solution, which means it's way worse than being overweight or obnoxious. It means that we've got to swallow our pride and realize 
that the depths of the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to realize we're so lost, we're unable to save ourselves, and nothing less than the life and incarnation and death of the Son of God could save us. But if that's true, Christmas also means this. It means that the God who came to die for us is the God who wants heaven to begin now, eternal life to begin now, forgiveness to begin now, and that God, and this is the heart of Christmas, brothers and sisters, is with us and for us and will be with us for the rest of our lives. We have three kids, and um, they're young adults now. Two, two of them are at the house. One's coming tomorrow. And you know, one thinks about oneself as a parent, and mainly one reflects on all the things you messed up, at least for me. But there are a few things we did right, and I do like thinking about those, because they make me feel better. And one of them is, we said to all our kids, look, you can fool me, you can fool your mom, you can fool your teacher, you can fool the bishop, you, know, you can fool whatever authority, but you can't fool God. So just remember that, but also remember this, it doesn't matter, I don't care where you are, I don't care how lost you feel, I don't care if you think nobody in the world understands you, wherever you are, Jesus Christ is with you and will always be there. Never forget that. Because as a parent, you cannot be, I mean, boy, do we feel this now with young adult children. So many things we want to fix. Can't do it. Can't be there. Feel really impotent. But we give them over to God, and we give them over to God with the knowledge that God will be there. So the heart of Christmas is the God who came all the way down, came all the way down, not just simply to save us, but so that he could live inside us and for us and be with us, and there's never a time in our lives when he will not be with us. And I don't care who you are, I don't care why you came tonight, I know life well enough to know that where you live and move and have your being, there are parts of your life where you feel, if you look in the mirror and are honest, nobody really fully understands how difficult things are for you. And I'm here to tell you that the God who made heaven and earth came all the way down, not simply to save you, but to be with you. And he's here to tell you tonight, he knows you better than you know yourself, and he's with you, even if it doesn't seem like it, even if you don't fully understand it. My absolute favorite story about God with us comes from a really unusual source. It's one of the heroes in Polish history. His name is Ignacy Jan Paderewski. He lived from 1860 to 1941. If you ever get a chance to go to the Warsaw Museum, you can see a lot about him there. He was one of the greatest musicians of that period of time. In addition to that, he was the Prime Minister of Poland, in addition to many, many other things. A remarkably gifted man in so many ways. But this is a story about him as a musician, and as a musician, he was not simply known for being a great musician, but he was someone who suffered greatly. His country suffered greatly. So he's also known as being a person of compassion. It's just one story about one concert on one particular day, and it had been well advertised in Poland, and everybody was there, and they were all dressed to the nines, and this one particular mother decided she'd go out of her way and bring her son. And there they were in the great concert hall, everybody dressed to the nines, and the nine-year-old boy, you know what I'm gonna say, he was there, but he was fidgety. And when he looked on the stage, he saw what everybody else saw, which I bet you know what I'm going to tell you. Just a piano, that's all. And the mother was leaning over and whispering to some acquaintances that were in her row. And you know what's going to happen. There he goes. He just kind of slipped away, and she didn't realize it. And fairly quickly and unobtrusively, he makes his way toward the stage. True story. 
His mother, by this time, has noticed he's gone, but she can't, when she glances around, try to locate him successfully. At this point, her son not only goes up to the stage, he goes on the stage. Not only does he go on the stage, he sits down at the piano bench. Not only does he go on the stage, he sits down at the piano bench, he starts playing. Oh, no. And he plays Chopsticks. By the time Chopsticks was in its early stages, the whispering ceased, and the people looked up in surprise and then disgust. Booing began, then hissing. And there was even yelling for the boy to stop. The mother, who up to this point had trouble locating her son for a few minutes, could not believe her eyes. And she felt herself, as she said later, agreeing with all the people with their hissing. Oh, and by the way, you remember the guy who's going to play. Paderewski, not just a great musician, but a musician with a great ear. And this is all going on, all the time. And he's desperately trying to figure out, with all these strange noises, what in the name of heaven is going on. And he gets so curious, he comes out, and he looks, and as soon as he sees the situation, he scurries up on the stage, and to everyone's amazement, he comes behind the boy as he's still playing chopsticks puts one right hand around the right side, one left hand around the left, and produces an exquisite counter melody. As he does so, the entire concert hall quiets down, and everyone who is there can still remember what he said. Don't stop, keep playing, I'm right here, I'm right here. Don't stop, keep playing, I'm right here, I'm right here. And so also, Jesus says to all of us this Christmas, don't be afraid, keep playing, keep playing, he's right here, he's right here. It really happened, he really condescended, he really did it because he didn't want to obliterate us in the process. He was born to die, and he will be with us and for us, and we are to live for him. That's what Christmas really means. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.